Hello dear friends and welcome to our podcast dedicated to sight reading through the lens of historically informed performance practice. And today we have a guest. What is your name? Could you please introduce yourself? I'm Johannes Keller. I'm a keyboard player, harpsichordist mainly. And what are you doing here in Scola? I teach the subject tuning and intonation and I'm a researcher in the field of um, let's call it the ugly name microtonality in the 16th century. Why ugly name? <laughs> because it's not really about microtonality. I sort of dislike that expression because it it brings out the quality of micro. So as as if it it was the goal to create very small intervals, which probably was not the only or the main motivation, but. It was more a side effect, an outcome, um, because the one of the goals might have been to create very much in-tune intervals, and what is produced by that reaching that goal uh, are very small intervals, but it's not about creating small intervals. So microtonality is a bit misleading in that sense, although it's correct technically. Martin Kirnbauer um, introduced the term Fieltönigkeit that is very difficult to translate into English. It's like many tonal, many toned music. So it's more about the plurality of pitches than the size of small intervals. And what is the initial idea, the original idea of having all those small or large intervals? are not usual? Mm, there are many answers to that question, so I try to give you one, <laughs> maybe more later. Um, I would say the, the main thing to blame is polyphony, because as long as you use intervals as a melodic phenomenon, so something that happens in one voice, for example, one human who is singing, produces intervals within this, the, this the sung line. As long as you are living in that kind of a world, you can have any kind of interval definition and it will work. As soon as you add more voices and you observe what happens between all those voices and you have an, an expectation towards these intervals that they are of a particular type of, or size, you cannot combine uh, anything. So if you have specific melodic intervals that should produce specific intervals between the voices, it gets very complicated. And this is what happened in the Western understanding of polyphony. The fact that by singing thirds and fifths and whole tones, um, no, the, let me put it this way, the the expectation that by singing these intervals you produce these intervals between the voices as consonances and dissonances, this is not realistic, it doesn't work mathematically. So there are problems that are created by that. <clears throat> and one of the solutions to these problems is to have many, many slightly different interval sizes, many different types, many different sizes of fifths or thirds, and then you choose according to the context and you make it work. Or you say, I'm going to use a compromised version of a fifth or a third, and I'm going to accept that this compromised version is the only one 
I have available and I make music with that. And both solutions left their traces in music history, so both are well documented and used for very different aesthetic goals. So it would be worth mentioning now that um, this is a specific problem for keyboard instruments, or a great problem for keyboard instruments, I mean for all instruments of course, but in the keyboard we often talk about temperament, wohl temperierte Klavier and you know, mean tone and everything. So we are talking right now about an instrument of yours yeah. that, that you have uh, in your possession. Can you tell us about Vicentino and this instrument a little bit? Yeah, he, Nicola Vicentino published a book in 1555 where he describes not only a keyboard instrument, uh, the, the archicembalo and the archiorgano, but also a practice around it, how to produce music and perform music that uses these instruments. Um, and a couple of years ago, um, in the context of a research project at the Musikakademie Basel, uh, we reconstructed these instruments for the first time actually after, let's say, the 17th century, where they uh, disappeared. And now we have those instruments available uh, as musical instruments and as research tools. And this allows us to explore these um, documents and these scores that are still uh, around using this instrument. And you, you mentioned that it's particularly a keyboard-related problem that I mentioned. I think it's independent of the, um, whether you sing it or play it with melodic instruments or play it with keyboard instruments. The keyboard instruments are just the poor ones that cannot help but um, show us the problems because we have only a limited number of keys and pitches per octave available, normally 12. And it turns out that 12 is a, a very smart choice um, because there are a lot of symmetries available but also it forces us to accept compromises that go quite far. And obviously in the 16th, early 17th century, these compromises were not that easily accepted. And that's why the limitation of the keyboard instruments um, was painfully obvious to the musicians at the time. And they tried alternative solutions to tempered uh, systems such as the Wohltemperierte system mm -hmm. or equal temperament that we know from pianos nowadays. So the Archiorgano is one of those attempts to create an interval system, a tuning system that can do so much more than what keyboard instruments normally can do. And do you think it comes from hearing purity in vocal music or it comes from wanting to achieve purity in vocal music? Impossible question to answer. <laughs> um, I mean, there, there are several ways to see this instrument. So what, what, what it was historically as, as an artifact. Um, one way is to, to see it as a crazy invention that some weird person came up with in the 16th century and no one really got it, no one was interested, and uh, it was treated as a, a Sackgasse der Musikgeschichte, one of the famous quotes, uh, a one-way dead-end uh, street of music history. So it, it died because it was not successful. That's sort of an evolutionary way of looking at it. The other way is to, to look at it is to 
seeing it an attempt to document, to describe, to materialize something that was around at the time, for example, in vocal groups or, or wind bands. And of course, it's too complicated to, to document by writing about it in numbers or, or, or language. So maybe this artifact, this machine, is um, documenting something um, that happened anyways. So that, in that sense, I could agree with you. Vicentino observed many things, a great variety of intonation approaches, and tried to materialize, to, to crystallize that into a keyboard instrument. In that sense, it's not really a keyboard instrument. It's more like a, a music machine yeah. that can reproduce very complex intonation uh, um, structures and make them available also for study and to train, to learn, because you cannot really train something that is never really there. Mm -hmm. So as soon as you create a, a, a stable reference system, like a, a deluxe tuning machine, you can start learning it, training it, giving names to all these many, many different intervals. Vicentino is naming well over 40 different interval identities. And in, in one of his organ tunings, you can count more than 140 different interval sizes that are then mapped to these interval identities in very complex ways. So it's way, way beyond what we are used to to manage mentally, coming from the background of, of modern uh, contemporary musicians' education. Wow, that's like a parallel universe. Yeah. Uh, could you tell us more about uh, Vicentino's um, theory and about all those um, tunings and modes that he created? Of course, it's a... a um, bottomless <laughs> pit, the rabbit hole goes very deep and I'm far from having reached the end so I'm really just discovering and observing for years now actually and reading his book roughly 300 pages of dense information over and over again I just keep discovering new aspects so what I'm what I'm explaining now, or what I describe now, is just a, a momentary uh, reflection on, on my own understanding of it. Um, so I already mentioned this perfection of intervals, so that you can have a, a pure fifth and third and obviously octave available at all times in all kinds of constellations. But that's just one side of it. The other side is a strong motivation to be more expressive with the contemporary music. And he creates this expressivity by reintroducing concepts of ancient Greek music into the contemporary practice of his time. He's not trying to, to reconstruct ancient music. That's not his goal. He very much appreciates the contemporary music uh, for its um, polyphony and the uh, many consonances that are available within that polyphony. So for him, I think modern music is polyphonic, three to seven, eight voices, polyphonic music using the thirds and sixths as consonant intervals, which was sort of a kind of a new thing in his time 
because in the 15th century you could argue that the thirds weren't consonant yet. They were unstable, part of a, a Pythagorean tuning system where the thirds, the major thirds are much larger than pure and much larger what we use today and therefore a very unstable identity, an unstable sonic experience. Um, but he's clearly talking about thirds as a, as a consonant thing. But as such, this system is quite limited of what you can do. You can use whole tones, one specific type of semitone, the semitone between E and F or B and C and transpositions of that, and minor thirds, major thirds, fourths and fifths, and that, that's pretty much it. And he diagnosed a great lack of variety in that. And he criticizes the contemporary music for being so much reduced in its expressive potential based on the limitation of different uh, interval identities. So he went to the, to the Greek texts and tried to come up with sort of a hybrid system, like a Frankenstein of a music theory, bridging the contemporary practice um, and Greek ingredients. And the main ingredient that he reintegrated is the idea of the three uh, genera, Tongeschlechter, uh, namely diatonic, chromatic, and harmonic. We still use those terms, but in a different context. So he basically creates a genesis of a music system that is quite traditional. He starts with theta chords, so structures of a, a fourth, the interval of a fourth, filled with two additional degrees in, in its center. So we have, for example, the fourth B, E, to use note names. You could fill that with B, C, D, E. So we have a semitone B, E, B, C, and two whole tones C, D, D, E. That's a diatonic tetrachord. By stacking two of these tetrachords, you can create a scale of an octave consisting of two sub-fourths. Um, this gives him a sort of a scale in a modern sense, spanning an octave, and within that octave he can locate the modes, so the modal scales, starting on D for the first and second mode, so do, uh, the, the authentic and plagal Dorian mode is based on D within that octave scale that consists of two stacked tetrachords. And then he, he can also define the E modes, the Phrygian modes, uh, and, and the Lydian and the Mixolydian. So he comes up with eight modes, the, the usual eight modes at the time, um, based on these tetrachord stacking. So far, that's nothing new. That's, that's how Renaissance music theorists describe the genesis of scales and modes. But what he does, he uh, uses the expression of the, the transmutation uh, from the diatonic uh, genus to the chromatic one. And he goes back to the very starting point of this genesis to the tetrachord structure itself. And he says, okay, this is the diatonic structure that we know. The chromatic structure uses two different semitones and a leftover interval that happens to have the size of the minor third. But it is a degree. It's a step. It's not the leap of a third. Um, if we want to assign note names to that, it could be B natural, C, C sharp, and E. That's an example of a chromatic tetrachord. And there's nothing between C sharp and E. 
This is the, the grado della terza minore, the, the degree of the, 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 the step of the minor third. And by using that tetrachord, he can stack it and create an octave scale, and he can again uh, locate the eight modes within that scale. So he gets a second set of eight modes that have a different um, inner structure for the melodic intervals. But they are still Dorian, Phrygian, Lydian, Mixolydian, and each of them in a plagal and authentic uh, version. So he he has a, like a parallel uh, stream of, of a music genesis. And then he does it a third time for the enharmonic material. And for that, he again needs to change the, the inner structure of the tetrachord. And, and one example of an enharmonic tetrachord would be B natural, B natural dot C E. So the dot thing is the thing that he needed to invent because his normal, the normal notation system of the 16th century couldn't um, articulate the interval of the diesis. And the diesis is the typical melodic interval of the enharmonic genus. And it's smaller than a semitone. And there are two different ones of them, a, a minor one and a major one. And if, if you take the, the fourth as the framing interval in the tetrachord, you go from the B natural, uh, for example, a diesis minore upwards, you reach the, the B natural dot, which is just a, a tiny bit sharper than a B natural. And then you go to the C, the, the, the interval between the B natural dot and C is a diesis maggiore, so a major diesis. It's larger than the first diesis that we created. And the leftover interval between C and E is a major third, but in, in the sense of a degree, of a step. There is no D available because that is not, that is, you cannot divide that, that, uh, that, that step between C and E. It's a grado incomposto. And by stacking two of those enharmonic fourths, tetrachords, he again creates the, the, the scale of an octave and he can again locate the eight modes within that scale. And by that he creates a third set of eight modes. Uh, but these are part of the enharmonic genus. And then as, a, as a, an outcome of that, he creates a cadence formulas, uh, progressions, counterpoint rules, um, all of that for each of the three genesis separately. And he says that in the end, to be more expressive than normal contemporary music, the composer always has to choose one of the three genera and use them consciously. So, but why ancient Greece? Because it was fashionable at that time? Or is there a... Um general idea behind inventing all these three genres? I'm not sure if I can answer that question. Um, it was certainly very fashionable and also very normal. Like since Boetius, and that's like late ancient uh, times, um, it, these ideas, they have always been used to to build a strong fundament for a theoretical understanding of music in the Western culture. It was always around and it was just natural to go back to that. And then, of course, there were many, many things, for example, polyphony, that was absolutely not part of that. But still, there was this um, tendency to legitimize what we are doing 
by going back to the to the Greeks and not only music in many many parts of the culture this was architecture for example uh, all kinds um, of of um, all all the the intellectual disciplines were based on ancient understanding and adapting that understanding, modernizing it, making it maybe better. And it is clearly in that line of thinking. But what is special for him is that he um, goes, he takes it much further than anyone else. And there is a strange, maybe not strange, but it's it's an, an obvious separation between the theorists and the practitioners in at the time. The theorists went really far with applying the mathematical principles of ancient music theory, but the practitioners didn't. And often I ask myself, did they ever talk to each other? Did any musician sit down with a monochord and really construct these crazily complicated systems and put them into music? Because we don't find any traces, we don't find any scores using those things. Uh, we don't find any interval names or notation systems using all those uh, systems. But Vicentino is, a, is a, 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 an outstanding um, exception to that because he did put it into practice. He built these instruments. He, we can document at least five of those organs that he built and he was traveling with them. He was very much seen and heard and discussed uh, in, in the time that uh, there was public discussions, disputes, he even need to, to, to pay a fine for spreading bad knowledge about music theory. He was uh, sponsored by the, the most influential and rich uh, cardinals. So he was part of like world politics uh, with his standing. But why then uh, his instruments didn't survive until now? I don't know, even like Renaissance traverses, they survived and we can see them in museums, but sadly his art organo did not. Yeah, there are many reasons. Obviously this idea of using or abusing uh, keyboard instruments to do very complicated things was not successful uh, throughout the 17th century. So the the, the, the phenomena of, of split keys, even not in the crazy way of Vicentino, but just some split keys per octave to have D sharp and E flat uh, to choose from, uh, they disappeared, maybe because they were complicated to play. I'm not so convinced of that argument because they are actually not, as it turns out. Um, but they are complicated to handle in terms of um, music practice to tune, to already, you cannot transpose in a system like that easily. Um, it's much more convenient to have the two semitones so close together that you can actually swap between them. Um, so I think the, the, the development towards tuning systems with a closed circle of fifths, where you can have the, the black keys as sharps and flats at the same time, that, that development is, is very easy to understand. For, for practical reasons and aesthetical reasons probably too. Uh, so it's certainly in that context that the practical need for Vicentino's instrument just disappeared and who, who would look after a, an instrument that is not needed anymore? A museum, but museums didn't really exist back then. And these organs that were built uh, out of wood, they had wooden pipes because they can keep the tuning much better than metal pipes. 
and they're easier to move around uh, and wood burns. And there's so, so, so many organs documented uh, that had wooden pipes in the 16th and 17th centuries. And today we have two of them. And I'm not talking about Vicentino organs, but just normal, regular organs. Like they, there must have been thousands and thousands of instruments that just disappeared entirely. Um, so it's not so surprising that a niche instrument such as the Archiorgano didn't survive. But it's one specific reason I cannot think of. We know that Vicentino died of the, the Black Plague and his apartment, all, like all his possessions were burned in Milano. So maybe also instruments. That, that would be uh, <laughs> one of the explanations. <laughs> so since we're talking about the instrument, because this is audio format, can you please describe the instrument? The visual appearance. Yeah. Or, or no, but I mean, we, I see already I see two keyboards. And can you just tell us a little bit about the system? Yeah, so the, the reconstruction is based mainly on one piece of paper, uh, sort of an, an ad, a flyer, um, praising the, the instrument uh, printed in 1561, probably by Vicentino himself, and he describes it in great detail. And it's basically what we see here. So we try to be really loyal to that description. So it's an organo di legno, that means wooden pipes. Do you see that immediately? Because it has a facciata, a uh, uh, um, Prospect, what's that in English? That is mitra shaped, so it, it's like a triangular shape with the longest pipe in the center. It has five rows of pipes. The first three rows are sort of on, sitting on top of the instrument. Um, there is a, the, a keyboard consisting of two manuals, but the lower manual, um, all of the black keys in the lower manual are split into two parts and there are two little keys between B and C and E and F. And the upper manual um, has also all the black keys split into two parts. And the keys are very small. The octave span is normal, a standard octave, but they are very close together. So they are very short, um, the white and the black keys. And it's easy to imagine that you play on both manuals at the same time. They have more like a typewriter kind of appearance than a normal organ keyboard. I don't know if you agree, but yes, it yes. looks like a, a Lego yeah, imitation of a typewriter, yes. maybe. <laughs> there are four octaves available. And the, the, the case, the organ case, um, sort of mimics... A temple ruin so there is no roof there's no architrave that you could expect of a greek temple but sort of it's weirdly cut at the sides to mimic a torso is that historical is that in the description there's not in the description but there is a, a coin a, a medallion um, that that survived with an, an engraved depiction of the organ and the harpsichord of vicentino wow. on the other side it's a portrait of him um and you can see that that is very weirdly shaped. Like it, it doesn't have the, the closing rooftop kind of construction that you would expect from a portable organ of the time. The design comes from a, a, an architect who specialized in Greek architecture, like ancient architecture. And he, he looked at the, that design on the on the coin 
and he came up with that idea. Maybe it's in because at the time they they built a lot of ruins from scratch, following the the proportion principles of Greek architecture, but not finishing them because they are ruins. So it's sort of this so this idea of creating an unfinished historical artifact. And that is what this organ is. It is an, it is an artifact. It's a hypothetical artifact. We, it's not a copy of anything. We made it up, but based on, on historical evidence. So in that sense, it's an sort of comparable to a, a, a newly built ruin <laughs> to explore then. <laughs> and what are the two keyboards? What are the differences? They're basically one keyboard yes. uh, split into two manuals. And... There are two tuning systems that Vicentino describes. One of them, for, for both of them, the lower keyboard remains the same and the upper keyboard changes the, the inner tuning. Uh, the lower keyboard is always tuned in a sort of a mean tone understanding. So I'm going to be quite technical now. For You tell me if it's too... Well, also, maybe maybe we'll put some uh, links for other content so that people who are not so familiar with tuning yeah. can educate themselves just a little bit. So I don't hold back. I'm, okay, <laughs> I'm very tactical. So it's uh, if you look at the mean tone temperament as a chain of fifths, uh, the chain of fifths used for the lower manual is starting at the G flat and ending 18 fifths later at the B sharp. So there are 19 pitches defined by that, 18 fifths that are tempered by a quarter comma. So the fifths are smaller than pure by a quarter of a syntonic comma. This results in major thirds. So all the major thirds that can be found on the keyboard are pure. Of course, only the ones that are spelled the correct way. So for, for a major third on B natural, it's the D sharp key. And for a major third uh, below G, it's the E flat key. So you cannot use the same. C sharp and F would not be a third. C sharp F. No, we have an E sharp key for that. C sharp F is a diminished fourth and therefore sounds different. So the, the main principle of this, of mean tone temperament in general, is that any, inst- any interval with a name has a unique sound. So you cannot have two different interval names sounding the same. It is possible on a piano because a C-sharp F there, it sounds the same as a major third. But in mean tone temperament, that's not the case. So the mapping is um, ein, eindeutig, uh, mathematical term. Yeah. yeah. And the upper keyboard is tuned in the same way. And the difference between the keyboards is in the first tuning that Vicentino describes, a diesis which is the fifth of a tone or half the distance between C and C sharp, for example, or F and F sharp. Um, So half the chromatic semitone. That means that there is a key that sits exactly in the center between C and C sharp. So that creates a a scale, if you like. I don't like that term, but a a succession of pitches ordered in... According to their pitch, that starts with C, for example, then comes C upper manual, which we call C dot, then C sharp lower manual, then D flat lower manual, which is one diesis higher than C sharp, 
then D flat dot, D flat on the upper manual, and then finally D. So we have five pitches uh, that divide a whole tone. Um, C, C dot, C sharp, D flat, D flat dot, D. D is the sixth pitch above C. And so on. The whole octave can be divided in that manner. And it turns out this is basically a fifth tone scale. So each whole tone is divided into five equalish part, and they are just um, lying in front of you. Maybe it's a time to demonstrate the sound of the organo. So maybe I can start with um, the tetra chords. So just as a yeah. illustration of, exactly. of yeah. that thing. So this would be a diatonic tetra chord with a normal a semitone BC and a whole tone and another whole tone and a fourth as the stable um, interval. Then we can stack those two. So I created an octave scale. And within that octave scale I can uh, produce all the modes. So I'm now I'm using different note names, for example the, the first mode. the second mode and the third mode and so on using these uh, octave scales and now from the diatonic to the chromatic uh, genus I have to use a different fill in for the fourth so again fourth this creates the, the chromatic tetrachord consisting of a large semitone which is the same one that we use for the diatonic one and a small semitone and a leftover the leftover has the size of a minor third and now the enharmonic tetrachord would sound like this. And here I decided to have the major diesis first. It's a major diesis. It's a minor diesis. And the leftover, who sounds like a major third, but it's a step. And by stacking that, I can again create an um, octave species. For example, now I transpose it because I don't have all the keys in the right tuning right now, but... ...would be uh, an octave outcome of the stacking of the two um, enharmonic tetrachords. And like that, I can again define the modes and so on. 
and then transform it into polyphony, of course. That's what Vicentino's book is about. Yeah. So just a division of the whole tone would be... Now I'm... By the way, this is transposing by a whole tone, so all the note names that I'm mentioning are shifted by a tone to the normal system of today, based on 440. So any perfect yes, people. <laughs> um, so this would, what I play would be a G. Uh, it's like a scoratura for me now because I'm. Yeah switching between the system. Um, so this would be G, G dot, G sharp, A flat, A flat dot, A. And quickly, how does it sound? Which one was it? Yes. Nice. Wow. Very impressive. But we the A flat A flat dot is on a diet on a diatonic key. Just now because I, I see. retuned it for the demonstration. Okay. Right now the organ is in Vicentino's second system, which is the main system that we decided to put on the organ. I can obviously change uh, the system, but the system that is uh, normally there when there are no modifications in place um, is the second system of Vicentino, which is again different than what I just described before. Uh, but what is the outcome of the the system that I just demonstrated, um, which is um, using these uh, three different types of tetrachords, is that we have many, many more melodic intervals available and also strange interval concepts. They are not just versions of thirds and tones and fifths, but they're the, he created new identities that we sort of, for us, they are alien. One that I find particularly interesting is the third that is neither major nor minor. You could call it a, a neutral third. So if we have the major one, it's a pure major third, the minor one, it's a pure minor one. It's already quite strange to have it in its pure shape because normally we are used to smaller minor thirds. So minor, major, and... So if you just hear that and try to decide is it a minor or major third, right. what would you say? Just try to listen to it and ask yourself the question is it minor, is it major? It's neither. It oscillates. It's like one yeah. of those uh, pictures where you can see two things like an and you can go back and forth, no, just with yeah. your mind. You imagine something and then it turns. It's similar to that. And if you if you hear the minor one first and then this neutral one, I personally would say it has something of major, yeah. yes, clearly. Definitely. But if you hear the major one first. It's clearly minor. It's the same key, it's the same pitch, I didn't change anything. <laughs> but this is what he calls uh, terza più di minore. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it has a very specific quality and expressivity and place in his system. It's like uh, the black matter of Vicentina. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yes. Thank you very much, Johannes. It was very enlightening and 
ESM yeah, shocks. It's, uh, <laughs> thank you, and yeah, thank you for joining us. And can we find you or your studio or I don't know? <laughs> can people know more about the instrument somewhere online? We have a, a homepage that is not very well updated, I have to admit, but you find uh, some material there. We have a YouTube channel and a SoundCloud presence. Oh, maybe we can you find all of yeah. that uh, under the name of Studio 31. Okay. And of course, you can put links. Sure. We will put links. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.